0: Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So, this is the second to last last week in our series, Life in the Kingdom. So we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, I think since April. Is that true, Greg? April? Since April. April. We made it all the way through to August. That's pretty cool. This is the last, the second-to-last message on the Sermon on the Mount. And by way of reminder, over the past month, Jesus has been explaining and warning true believers to be on watch for certain things. We've learned that a life following Jesus is not always a suffering-free life. And in fact, sometimes following Jesus means that suffering is introduced into your life in a certain way. And we also learned the week before that, that there's a certain type of prayer life, a life that's marked by relational conversation that is ever increasing in your ability to deal with life no matter what it looks like. So you have this conversational prayer life with God, and it, it builds in you, the Spirit builds in you this ability to handle life no matter what. So you don't need a suffering-free life because you truly do have God. Jesus empowers us by the Holy Spirit to handle whatever life throws at us. And in that conversational prayer life, something incredible happens. We actually see suffering as good. It does something good for the believer. So that's what we're learning in the Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus last week warns true believers that there will be false prophets who try to teach you that following Jesus means you don't have to suffer anymore. And that's a false gospel. We also learned that there are going to be false prophets who give a leadership structure that's based on being mean and harsh and combative, which again is a false Jesus. So If you've got a prophet who's teaching you that there's a suffering free life, that's not from God. And you have a prophet and a teacher that's being combative and harsh and mean to the flock. That's also not from God. Greg said last week that sinful means do not justify righteous actions. So we have to be on watch because there are going to be false prophets who either market Jesus as a way to suffering free life Or there's going to be false prophets who try to stronghold you by their desire for power. And we don't want to be attached to either of those types of false teachers. And I imagine the disciples are listening to this in the Sermon on the Mount, and they're probably like, okay, Jesus, I see you. You're coming at these false prophets. That's a mate, like, probably cheering him on. And then Jesus looks to the disciples. And he says, yeah, there's going to be some false prophets. Be aware of those false prophets. But also, there's going to be some of you who never knew me. There's going to be some of you who I never known. There's going to be false prophets and false teachers and false pastors and false church leaders. And there's going to be some of you in the flock who are faking it too. And that's a really sobering thing thought and I just want you guys to know this is a passage that I've wrestled with a lot in my early years as truly understanding the gospel and this week this passage is sobering because Jesus is saying something pretty drastic you can say you're a Christian and it not be true and that's tough because Jesus said it, so that means that's true. And we're meant to wrestle with that. Back to the passage. Matthew 7, 21-23. Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the Kingdom of Heaven, but the One who does the will of My Father who is in Heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now I remember when I first encountered this passage, I was probably 17, and I had a group of friends. We would go into high school and we like wrote passages on our arms in Sharpie for like a semester because we were in youth group and it sounded like the really fun thing to do. And we were going through the Sermon on the Mount and we got through like the really good stuff that we're supposed to like remember and write on our arms. And then we got to this one and I'm like what are we going to do? So we did. We were like, "All right, well, you know, we're going to continue this um this track." And I was like terrified to write this on my arm. Like, are you kidding me? I can say that I'm a Christian and it not be true and I found myself wondering where I would stood on the Day of Judgment before Jesus and I would ask these questions to myself. Like, have I done enough? Have I given enough? Have I served enough? Have I shared the Gospel enough? And I created different, different rules for myself so that I would not come to Jesus and say, you know, I haven't really done enough. Which is crazy because that's the antithesis of this passage. and. You know, it just made me more afraid. I became more reliant on myself and not on God. And these are, these are very um, understandable questions. They're legitimate questions. Where will I stand on the day of judgment? Where will I stand in front of the Lord? What will He say to me? And my hope this morning is that we bring great clarity because Jesus is gentle and He is lowly and he is gracious and he is full of love. We learned last week or a couple weeks ago, I should say, that the golden rule only works when you have godly and righteous desires. And Jesus wants us to be aware that there's going to be false believers, and he also wants us to take a true and honest look at our own life from this teaching. And if the golden rule only works when you have godly and righteous desires, then this is really important. And I think there's lots of reasons why this passage is important for true believers. And one of them is that real damage can happen when you take advice from someone who claims to be a Christian but really isn't. Real damage can happen when you take advice from someone who masks their advice in Christianity, but it's not really from Christ. There's going to be people who say that they're Christians who aren't. And our world masks their inspiration and quotability. If you're ever on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, our world masks their inspiration and quotability in Christian sentiment. And we eat it up. We send it to our families and to our group chats and we say things like, deep. Right? And when we eat things up that look good or are close to right, but aren't from Christ, we do damage to ourselves. and We do damage to others. And so Jesus sets sets out in this passage to help real believers decipher what a false believer looks like. Because this is some tough stuff. I mean, you're walking a a tightrope. You're you're living in a tension knowing that this is real. It's out there. So last week we talked about what false prophets look like. And this week we're going to talk about some evidences of false disciples. The first evidence of a false disciple according to the passage is this. A false disciple will profess Jesus as their Lord, but not of their character. A false disciple, an untrue disciple will profess Jesus as their Lord, but not of their character. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is talking about those people who profess Himself as Lord, but haven't surrendered their life. It's the person who gives great lip service, but has no need for a change. We need to take a second to look at what Jesus is really saying here. He's saying that there are people who will say, Lord, Lord, and won't inherit the kingdom. Now two things, the first thing is that when you say that Jesus is your Lord, what you're saying is that Jesus, I give you the keys to everything in my life. I will bend to you. You don't bend to me, Jesus, my life bends to you. That's what giving Jesus the Lordship of your life means. So you're saying no matter what it is, it's yours, you can have it. And I'm going to change dependent on You, Jesus, and I don't need You to change dependent on Me. And what's being revealed is that someone can acknowledge Jesus, but won't bend to Him. And what's even crazier is that according to Jesus, this person will say, Lord, Lord. Two lords. And I think this is in your notes. But in Hebrew culture, repeating someone's name held a lot of significance. It was a Hebrew sign of intimacy. When you use someone's name twice, it meant I am dead serious about this. I'm fervent about this. And that's what what makes distinguishing a false disciple really hard is because Jesus says that people can be really, really fervent about it. And it not be true. When God spoke to Abraham as He was about to sacrifice Isaac, He said, Abraham, Abraham. When David cries over the death of his son, he cries, Absalom, Absalom. When Jesus warned Peter of his denial, He says to him, Simon, Simon. To repeat, someone's name held much significance. It was intimate. So if these people on the last day are just saying Lord, it would be a casual greeting. It would not signify they really knew him or had a relationship with him. It would be more like that person, hey, you know, I've met you know Jim. Hey, Jim. But to say Lord, Lord, was to be outwardly fervent. It would be it would be to say, Lord, you are my Lord. This is a sign of emotional investment. It's people who can even be fervent to their call of the Lord. And that's really important. Because a false disciple can have an external expression of emotional attachment. An external expression of emotional attachment. But internally, their heart has never been changed. The relationship has never been established. The lip service was never enough. Has anyone seen Men in Black? I mean, this was my favorite alien movie growing up because it wasn't that scary and I'm a, like I was afraid of signs. But if you put on Men in Black, you had Will Smith and you had the other guy from No Country for Old Men, whatever his name is. Tommy, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones. And the the main antagonist of this movie was an alien who crashed down onto a farm. And then he took the skin of this guy named Edgar. And then he lives the rest of this movie's life as Edgar. And he walks into his into his farmhouse and he's like, his wife's like, What happened out there? And he's like, Sugar. That's all he says. And she's like, Huh? She's like, Sugar. Give me more sugar. And he like drinks all of the sugar. So what Edgar does is he puts on the skin of a human to mask himself in the world. And pretty much everyone who comes into contact with Edgar was pretty skeptical. I mean, he goes to this random pawn shop and this dude like looks up like, are you okay? Do you need something? And he pulls his face back one time to just show like, does this look better? It's one of the things he says. So Edgar, Edgar puts on a sin, uh, the skin of a human, but in every other way was not human. He tells people he is a human. But inside, he was an alien. He was acting in human form, and at the end of the movie, it's revealed because his skin comes off, and he's this massive bug alien that's trying to, I don't know, take over the world. This is the same thing. False disciples put on the skin of a Christian, but inside, they're not. And they can tell anyone that they meet, I'm a Christian! Believe me! But inside, it's not true. And when it's revealed, it will be revealed. A false disciple want the benefits of Jesus as Lord, one of which is eternity, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. They want that benefit, but they don't actually want Jesus. This is the person who claims Jesus as their King, but they don't want Jesus to rule their kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount has been about true believers having their character changed. Their character changed by a real communal relationship with Jesus and others. And a a false disciple will profess Jesus as their Lord, but their lives will show that Jesus is not their Lord. And here's one of the ways that it's really hard because Jesus says it can be masked in fervency and emotional attachment. You can have all my money, Jesus, but you can't have my anger. You can have all my time and my energy, and I will be the most loyal person to your church. I will be at everything. I will serve in every wing there is at your church. But you cannot have my pride. That's mine. It's just who I am. A false disciple will say, Jesus, I want You as my Lord. But their character doesn't show that. See what Jesus says, those who inherit the kingdom of heaven do the will of the Father. And a false disciple says, not Your will, Father, but Mine be done. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus exemplifies the response of a true child of God. What does He say? He doesn't want to go to the cross. He knows the pain and the anguish that's about to come. And Jesus says, Not My will, Father, but Yours be done. You see the difference? Jesus said, I'm the Son of God. And then His actions showed He was a child of God. A false disciple, their life is marked by not Your will, Father, but Mine be done. So here's what we learn. An outward confession of Jesus doesn't always indicate a repentant heart. You can trick the whole world. You can trick every person you've ever known, and you can't trick God. Number two, a false disciple disciple trusts in their own work. Verse 23 Or is it 22? Yeah, it's 22. My notes are wrong. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your own name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Because a false disciple gives their resume to God. Look what they did. They they went to Jesus and they said, alright, it's that day. Look at what I did for you. Look at all the good I did. I mean, these are, these are pretty good things, right? They prophesied. They cast out demons. I mean, I'd say that's a pretty good thing. They did marvelous works. And they come to Jesus and said, look at all I did. And they plead with their works. And this is so important, and this has been the crux of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is more concerned with how you do life than what you do with it. And that was completely lost on the people that Jesus is talking about. A false disciple will have a list of good works but no real love for Jesus. And this is this is something really close to home that I've just been wrestling with a lot that a false disciple can know all the answers. They can have all the theology. They could have read every book in the Bible over and over and over and say, God, look what I've done. And they never even knew Him. Look at all the good I did. I prophesied in your name, I cast out demons. I've read every book on my bookshelf, I've done marvelous works. And Paul reminds us in Romans 3, there's an unrighteous. No, not one. A false disciple looks at the Sermon on the Mount and says, I can do this. And in trusting in their own works, they've made themselves God. And here's the thing about a works-based false disciple. Their idol isn't their work, it's themselves. Look at how great I am. That's what they're saying to Jesus. Look at me. Accept me. Look what I've done. And that's what they'll plead to Jesus on the last day. But I was great. I was great. And you never knew me. You worked really, really hard, but we never had a relationship. There was a much better life he could have had. So the false disciples, they prophesy and cast out demons and do many good things, but won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is that so? Because back to verse 21, they didn't do the will of the Father who is in heaven. That's who inherits the kingdom of God. Those who do the will of the Father. Now this seems like to be a pretty important thing to talk about in this passage. What's the will of the Father, right? If to inherit the kingdom of heaven, you need to do the will of the Father, we should probably be pretty clear this morning what that looks like, I would say. I don't want to leave here and be like, "All right, I have to do the will of the Father, but what's that? Probably not good. This is the key that unlocks the entire verse. And when we read this in the right lens, it leads us to really deep assurance in in Christ and in, in, in his hope that he will one day bring us home with him. So I want to talk about two different ways that we read the Bible. It's either through, and there's more, but just for this sake, there's two I want to talk about. We can read the Bible through a lens of work and through a lens of rest. False disciples read the Bible through a lens of work, they see the command of God. And accomplish that command by working hard. And on the last day, what Jesus says is they'll take all the good that they did that Jesus asked them to do and say, Look what I've done. And this leads to exhaustion and to burnout. And most importantly, according to the passage, the lens of work does not require a relationship, it doesn't save. But the lens of rest, when you read the Bible through a lens of rest, it's reading a command of God and finding rest, knowing that the work is being produced in you through your intimacy with Jesus. So if you see the Sermon on the Mount and you accomplish the work to be accepted, that's work. If you see the Sermon on the Mount, And the work you do happens because it has been produced in you through a life dependent on God, that's rest. It's really important. The lens of rest is not passivity or apathy, but it is in fact doing good work out of a heart that's truly alive to God, fully dependent on Him. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor, you don't immediately go and say, all right, well, what I must do is love my neighbor. It's. Your intimacy with Jesus leads you to loving your neighbor. You see that? And that's what the lens of rest is. You see a command of God, and it kind of overwhelms you, and it leads you directly to Him. Through the lens of work. The will of the Father is this: I've got to do my best to obey the law. Here's one. i got to be on fire for God all the time. I have to live in my own strength. If you read the Bible through the lens of work, we've learned this over the last couple months, you're not going to measure up to the the rules that you make up. You're going to make up rules to make sure that you hit all of your marks and you're going to fail at those rules that you make up. I mean, I've never, ever ever got an A in the own rules I've made for myself. I fail them all the time. It's like, i got to make a new contract with God every three days. That's reading the Bible through the lens of work. If you read the Bible through the lens of rest, you remember that Jesus helps us out of a dependence on Him. When you read the Bible through the lens of work, at best, following Jesus leads to pride. At best. When you follow Jesus out of rest, it leads to dependence. So remember, Jesus came... Jesus came to correct the moral, not to correct the moral law of God, but he came to correct the interpretation. That's what the Pharisees were messing up. They messed up the interpretation of God's word. And under this new interpretation, it's all about Jesus. And you can deboard this train of work in religiosity by seeing that the will of the Father is fulfilled in Jesus. The will of the Father is fulfilled in Jesus and not by you. Through the lens of rest, you can see that the will of the Father is not what you do, but about who you are becoming. Now this is important, because the false disciples were doing some good things, so it must mean that the will of the Father is not to prophesy, or to cast out demons, or to do marvelous works. And we're going to get even a little deeper here. You might think the will of the Father is doing what He asks you to do. Loving your neighbor. Serving the Lord. Being salt and light. These are in the Sermon on the Mount. And you might think that doing the will of the Father is abstaining what He's asked you not to do. You don't look at anyone with lust. You don't judge anyone inappropriately. None of those. None of those are what Jesus is talking about when He says the will of the Father. And here's why. Because believers do not relate to the Father through what they do and don't do. But only through the righteousness given them freely by Jesus. So what's the will of the Father? The crowds asked Jesus in John 6, what does this mean? They ask Him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Same question. And Jesus answered them with like, we always get to these pressure release valves. It's like I'm going to you know I'm going to blow your mind really quick. This is what Jesus says in verse 29 of John 6. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And then later in verse 40, he even makes it clear. He says, "For this is the will of my Father." I mean, blinking lights, right? This is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. What does it take to inherit the Kingdom of Heaven? To do the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? Believe in the Son. The Kingdom is not about doing, but about relationship. And the will of the Father is about being known, not about doing. I mean, this is the crux of the passage. I think the the biggest blow when I read this is that Jesus doesn't just say you don't get to inherit the Kingdom of Heaven. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. We we never had a relationship. You, You did all the good things. The false disciples skipped right over the relationship and went straight to working hard for God. And they never even knew Him. But the will of the Father is completely built into the relationship with the Son. And the work in the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters, is possible through a heart change that comes only from being known by Jesus. For your life to exemplify the Sermon on the Mount truly, It has to be marked by being known by God and you knowing Him. So love your neighbor. Yeah. But that love is ever increasing in you as you are embracing the full love of Christ in relationship with Him. And the evidence of the true disciple becomes plain. A false disciple trusts in themselves as Lord and doesn't surrender their will. A true disciple professes Jesus as their Lord and does surrender their will. A false disciple says, my will be done. A true disciple's life will bear fruit that says, your will be done. A false disciple trusts in their own work. A true disciple trusts in the work of Christ. And a true disciple sees the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope that the rest of your life, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, this is clear. And you remember it, that when you see the Sermon on the Mount, it leads you to dependence. Restful work. A false disciple trusts in their work for salvation. But a true disciple knows that their work is not sufficient to save. And trusts in Jesus' sufficient work. Now once again, Jesus is claiming something pretty drastic, right? You can say, I'm a Christian, and it not be true. Now I asked Melissa, because I wrestled with this passage pretty hard, so I was finally like, alright babe, I'm going to read this out loud about ten times, and then you ask some questions. And we, we kept coming back to the same question, well how can I know? Now I think this is so important. How can, how can I know that this is me? Now let's talk about assurance for a second. There's a quote by Ray Galia. Assurance is a God given confidence for every true believer in Christ of their present approval and future acceptance by their Father. So assurance is that you have confidence that you're saved. It's being able to say, I know. And I, I have to establish this. Assurance is not salvation. It's your confidence in salvation. And something amazing happens with assurance. And I'm 29, but I, this is true for the last 8 years of my life. Assurance grows as you get older. And you mature with Jesus. And assurance grows even more as you grow closer and deeper and more intimate with Jesus. You become more sure of your acceptance of by him because you're with him. You're in relationship with him. You know that he's gentle and he loves you. We have to see where our assurance is found. The assurance of your salvation is not in the work that you do. That's what the disciples were assured in. They were assured that they would be accepted by their work, our assurance comes in the work of Christ. A true disciple trusts in the work of Christ. We are not assured because we trust our decision as a kid. We are not assured because we trust our own ability to make the right decision and say the right words at the perfect time. We're not assured because we possess an incredible ability to obey. And we're not unassured because we, pos- we might possess an incredible ability to disobey. This is really important. We only find assurance that it is Christ's work that saves. And nothing that we can do or not do is sufficient to save. And if you're here this morning and you're like, okay, I got you, Al. I'm with you. I'm tracking. I don't trust my own will. I, I, pr- I feel pretty clear about that. Like, I know I'm not, I'm not able to trust myself. And I don't trust in my own works. I believe in Jesus, but this is still terrifying. I'm still scared. I'm going to end with this story. And the music team can make their way up. Don Carson tells this story about assurance. He says, imagine there are two Jewish dads during the first Passover. Now the Passover is when the angel of death swept through the land of Egypt. It was the last plague, and God was saving His people. If you dabbed, if you slaughtered a lamb, dabbed the blood on your door, ate the whole Passover meal, it would signify that I am with you, God. And so imagine there's two dads on the first Passover, and Don Carson makes, makes it funny Smith and Brown, as he recalls. Remarkably Jewish names. And Smith looks at Brown and he says, I'm pretty nervous about tonight. Like, this is some, some crazy plagues going on. There's been some flies and some frogs and some warts and some famine. Like, all the cows died. This is, you know, this is pretty scary. And Brown says, well, I'm not nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and dabbed your door with the blood? And Smith replies, well, of course I did all that. I'm not stupid. (laughs) I did that stuff. But I mean, there's been some crazy plagues. (laughs) This is some scary stuff. Did you know that there's a threat of the firstborn dying tonight? I only have one son, Brown. You got three. The angel of death is coming. I've spread the blood. I've done what God's asked me to do, but I'm still pretty scared. And Brown looks at Smith and says, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. And that night when the angel of death passed through the land, which one of these lost their son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them based on the intensity and the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb, and it's the blood of Christ that silences your accusation this morning. How am I really saved? How can I really know? I've messed up a lot. Sin the same way. The blood of Christ saves you. It's one of my favorite hymns. Reminds me of the sweet healing. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And whether you're a Christian for 40 years or this is the first time you've heard it, don't trust in your works, trust in the blood-bought work of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.